The Sports Career Podcast, episode 262, How Can Gymnastics Prevent Injuries in Contact Sports? Hello Sports Achiever and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in how gymnastics can reduce concussions and prevent injuries in contact sports. So I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Lee McDermott. Lee is an Olympian and a gymnastic consultant where throughout his career he has represented Great Britain, England in gymnastics. He's a two-time British champion and also he competed at the Atlanta Olympic Games. Currently, he is a gymnast consultant where he actually works with teams and organisations in contact sports to help those players and teams reduce injuries with regards to a season with the application of using gymnastics as a tool to prevent injuries. It's really fascinating in the work he does and for that reason it's such a pleasure and privilege to have Lee as a special guest on the show. That's why in today's episode Lee will share his gymnastic career journey and explain how gymnastics can prevent concussion in contact sports. Lee it's such a privilege to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Um, I, I started when I was 10 years old doing gymnastics. Uh, originally was doing football, just like every other young kid back in the UK. I, I, this is a usual story. Most most kids bouncing around and mum and dad gets annoyed and they want to put them somewhere. So I ended up, ended up in the gym. To be honest, I just love chucking myself around and probably landed on my head a few times. <laughs> so uh, did, did gym, um, went, went on became national champion as, as, a, as a junior, then senior, and went on to Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, and made a career out of gymnastics, really. So that, that, that's my actual gymnastics pathway. Okay, from that pathway perspective, can you remember what age where that sort of penny dropped going, actually, this is the route I want to take from a sport journey perspective? Can you remember that moment when you wanted to compete as a gymnastic, as like an elite performer? I can't remember a, a switching point other than a coach lined us all up in the uh, beginning of a session one day. And he said, okay, so this gymnast, what, you know, what do you want to do? What's your goals? What's your aspirations? A couple of gymnasts said, oh, I'd like to be club champion. Another one said, I'm doing it for fun. Another one said, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind being national champion. And then he got to me and apparently I said, I'm going to be British champion. I will be going to Commonwealth Games and I will be going to Olympic Games and no one's going to stop me. And that, that was, and, I, and it just came out. And I just don't remember having any other vision when I was a kid of going, I had to go to Olympic Games no matter what. That, that was it. How important is that? Seriously powerful because, you know, we're in a world now where from a career perspective, people have that pivoting point. 
but but what's the benefits of setting that vision in place not just as an athlete but any walks of life when we want to achieve something looking back to that experience you've just said yeah, it's it's important. I, I think there, there's goals to be had, but you've also got to have some realistic goals on how you're going to get there. Uh, I, I do remember talking to my mum and saying, "Well, I, that means I have to move club. That means I've got to do this. I've got to do that. We um, can we can we do this? Can we do these things?" Uh, mum and dad were were pretty supportive, but likewise, if I wanted to quit, they were gonna they would say it was fine too. It's what it was whatever my my dream was. And you just have to make sure that those goals are, are achievable. Um, my coach loved that I'd had that personal drive my, myself. And he was a very young, innovative coach at the time, uh, working two jobs, coming to the gym at night kind of um, hobby. And we clicked. And Simon Moore, who, who was my coach, just loved that I had faith in him and he had faith in me. And I think it was just a really good match. Sorry, not stating the obvious, but how important is it to find a coach at an early age that believes in the vision you have? I know it sounds obvious from a coaching and athlete perspective, but sometimes we lose the basics of that relationship between a coach and an athlete. Yeah, sure. It's I would say it's, it's extremely important. And there's no point just staying at a club just because it's the, the best club. If you don't gel with that coach and it doesn't work, I think, and as a coach now, that I think it's important to be able to recognize that and say to the, the, the kid or the parent or whatever, it's okay to go to a different coach and it's okay to, to do that because that's just, it's, it's, it's pivotal that you have the, the athlete at the center of, of, the, of the triangle, if you like. And just from a communication standpoint, did you enjoy how he communicated with you with regards to when he pushed you or when, when I mean pushed you, I mean to your potential as a gymnast. That's what I mean, pushed you. Like how important is the communication side of a coach and athlete as well? It's super important. However, I'm sure I annoyed him and I'm sure he annoyed me. Like uh, it's, it's normal. If you're going to spend many hours with somebody, you're going to annoy each other. It's like being married. So uh, the, the communication part is, is really important. Obviously, gymnastics at the time was was very much a, I was young and it was important that my parents were understood what what the goals and objectives were, not not just me. But I, but I was very self-driven. So and I don't remember it any other way. Would you just mind painting the picture to the listener with regards to what Commonwealth Games you competed in and the Olympics, just to paint the picture there from a competing standpoint? Yeah, sure. So I was a junior and then just switched straight to senior. And that was around the 92, 93 um, time. And then 94 went to Commonwealth Games in Victoria, in Canada, Uh, got a gold on rings and uh, bronze team. And we'd never won the team event. Went from Commonwealth Games in 94 doing a personal best as well went to 96 olympic games and i was actually a british champion in 94 and 96 as well finished uh, did did olympic games um kind of took a bit of a dive down afterwards because it's always hard to come back after such a high and then managed to get back up again to the 98 commonwealth games where in kuala lumpur where the team got gold and i got a bronze on the high bar and I carried on from there after that i i finished in 90 sorry in 2000 and then I was uh, went to Commonwealth Games in 2002 and 2006 for New Zealand as a coach. Wow. Okay. I just got to go back in time, back to that 1994 experience when you're on a high. You said I had a dip. Could you just dig deep with regards to what you mean there? Like, is it time to acknowledge that achievement, or was it more? I just need a break 
from what you've just achieved as well, from all the hard work or hard years beforehand? I'm just intrigued on that point. It's it's hard to pinpoint, to, to be honest. I, I know that once you... Like cause I, I got to the Olympic Games and I, I don't actually remember competing very well, uh, very much. It was uh, you, it was autopilot and it was definitely your body took over from all the years and months of, of preparation took over. And then I think just that adrenaline rush, um, pleased to get it over and done with without kind of making a fool of myself, competing fairly well, uh, making sure that you, you've done everything that you can possibly do. And then <clears throat> just dropping down on the other side to, uh, I guess, reflect, to take some time out and, and asking, do you want to jump back on that horse again and, and, and pick it back up on the other side? So, yeah. And just with regards to the mindset of preparation, like how are those lessons being an elite gymnastics supported you now relating to all the Olympics and Commonwealth Games you've competed in out of interest? It creates a lot of resilience. It makes you also understand that when you're going through rough times, it does get better on the, on the other side. Um, sometimes acknowledging that the grass is not always greener on the other side with, with things, uh, but it just makes you just makes you so determined and knowing that you can achieve your goals. And so when you take that out of a sporting world or you go into, into work, uh, it's very relatable in, into a workspace. However, as an individual sport, when you go to work, you have to consider others. Uh, and you've got to then put others into that, that play as well. Then when you're coaching, you've got to consider all, all the things around the kids that you're dealing with as well. And again, some only want to be a club gymnast, some want to be fun, and some want to make it. And you have to recognize also the, the mistakes that you made, the, the bits that kind of worked and, and, and work on that. So, yeah, it, it, there's, there's a lot of relatable um, skills that, that come out of that. Let's talk about relatable skills. Just that transition from being a gymnast to a coach. Can you just paint the picture just for the listeners? Like I've had other elite athletes on and I always ask the question of that career transition. Would you mind just sharing that experience and what inspired you to go in that coaching role? out of interest i'm sure you've heard this a lot ed uh, i i finished my gym career and i would pretty much say i was depressed uh loss of identity uh not knowing what the hell i'm gonna do uh because you had that just that one vision and one goal in, in mind and it was too singular and maybe too too narrow the time wasn't huge amounts of resources for uh post thought right so um, I would say I kind of was probably depressed for, for quite quite some time, trying to find my feet, like like many athletes, uh, I think. But then also understanding that I've got a lot to give back, and there's a lot there's a lot of things to be learned from what we've done. One, obviously, on a technical side of any sport that you that you do, but also on time management, uh, preparation. There's there's so many relatable things like uh, respect. Uh, dealing with others, dealing with failure. Um, yeah, there, there's so many things that you can you can bring into any workplace. You know, like periodization plans, macro cycles, micro micro cycles that, that are all in all in play. And so when I finished my sport, I thought, oh, Lee, that that's all you know. That that you don't know anything else. And then, but then I did. It took a while to really understand that all these skills are actually relatable in, in the world. Just on that point, you've, I've got a huge smile on my face and I'll explain why, because this is the thing that I always mention this question is, 
all athletes I've had on the show had that down period, but do you think the hard part for an athlete is because you do, you've done so much reps in the gym, in the ring or in the competitions, you don't realize the skills you develop along the way. It's only till you stop and reflect and then you see the skills you've developed because that's what saddens me really quick is when you go through a dark patch and you don't see that value. And I'm sharing this because if athletes are going through it, maybe having that time away from your sport to switch off, to reflect. Is that why it's so important to reflect after a career to pinpoint those skills? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. It's, um, it's quite depressing when you think that that's, you think you don't know much <laughs> and then all of a sudden you, you, you go, actually, yes, I do. I knew more about biomechanics and about physiotherapy and, and um, physiological movements and everything without even really, let's say, studying. Uh, because of how gymnastics works and and how the body moves, I didn't realise that I knew all of all of these things and until one day. I, I remember early in my gym coaching career that I started spilling out all of these things out of my mouth when I was talking to one of the kids, and, and then going back afterwards at the end of the day, going, "How did I know that?" But it just, it, uh, but it all, all made sense. But it, it, and it just came out, and I was like, "Yeah, this is." This is really interesting. This is quite powerful that you actually know a lot, a lot. Just on that point, this is why I shared as students and even myself, there's like theory knowledge and then there's practical knowledge. And I would say athletes build such a big bank of practical knowledge. They just don't know how to funnel it in the communication, which you've just said that great example. But I now want to talk about your coaching philosophy. When you decided to be a coach, when did you had to like refine your coaching style that worked for you and also the athletes you're working with? Because you've got such a high standard as an elite athlete, that's why I ask. Sure, and not and not always the best athletes make the best coaches. That uh, it just doesn't work wasn't work like that. And I was probably young and naive when I was starting my my, my coaching career. Going, cool, I can produce an Olympian. Sure, no 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 worries. I, if, if I can do it, then anyone can kind of do it. And then of course you 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 realise that he's the same. Everyone's not built the same. Everyone's not socially economic the same. Uh, like it, it, and it's all it's all different. So it took a while to learn learn <clears throat> those skills. I did well with my coaching career when I first came out and uh, uh, working in New Zealand there. I think the best thing that ever happened to me, though, was actually I got burnt out around 2007, 2008, coaching-wise. I walked away from gymnastics and went to Cirque du Soleil, uh, and they had a still coaching, but in a completely different manner and a completely different way and a completely different philosophy around how you get results and how and how you collaborate and how you create and the creative process that made me a better coach, made me a better person. We'll talk about Coach de Soleil. I, I want to mention that. But just going back from your coaching experience, what would you call your sort of pillars of effective coaching that you've learned when you do coach people? Just for any co young coach listening in, what are your foundations of coaching from your experience? Yeah, sure. I've got an idea of like kind of in my head of what works when I'm looking visually at uh, something. <clears throat> and then you've also got to remember everyone's different and it's not going to work the same, the same as what this, this ideal image that you have in your head. So there's got to be variables. And I, and I believe that if you, if you have a line, like for example, a straight line up, and this is the way that you want to go, you've got to be able to go left and right and up and down and round to get to the same result. And because not one, not one way fits all. 
so that that's really important that I think one way doesn't fit fit all. So I, I, I believe that you've got to have the athlete at the center of of the of the discussion. It's not about just the the coach glorification of winning a, a medal. It's it's about what the what the athlete can can do. And of course, it, of course, it, you're human as a coach. You 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 would like that praise of, of everything as well. But it's it's the, it's the athlete. You know, it's you you got to do that. So, and the biggest thing that I've learned is listen before I open my mouth. Then then I, I think I'm going to be a better coach. Absolutely. So it goes back to your point when you're an athlete, sticking to that vision from an athlete standpoint and. You know, the coach is there to aid that journey. Look, I do now want to talk about Circus de Soleil because we had a WhatsApp call before making this podcast happen and I was fascinated. And could you just paint the picture how you got involved working with such an iconic brand, but also share about the experience itself? I know you've touched on it from a coach standpoint, but could you just paint to the listeners that experience? Because, you know, you did some great work around the world with this brand. So I'm going to give you the mic now. I was in I was in Auckland and uh, the the tour had come to Auckland where I was living, and two of my best friends were on on the tour, where and we had a barbecue and they they said Lee you're crazy you just put your name forward dudes like just come on you've you've got a lot to offer, and I resisted for a really really long time really long time because uh, I thought this is all I know then I then I finally put it forward and it literally they they called me up I had a quick interview they flew me to Australia. And they said, uh, come join us. And you've got the choice of this show, this show, this show, this show, this show. And one of the shows that was in the time frame was Tokyo. I spoke to the missus and um, she said, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So you kind of, then they fly you to Montreal. You do about four, five, six months of kind of a, a creative process. Uh, you're starting kind of with a, a storyline, but a, but a blank canvas, if you like, of what, uh, or maybe some image imagery. And then it's a lot of trial and error and creative process to, to come up with the show. Everyone's got their own uh, responsibilities within the show. So, I mean, that could be costume, that could be makeup design, that could be uh, acrobatics, that could be dance, music, <clears throat> whatever. And then as a coach, your job is to marry the the music component with the acrobatic component or the dance component, working with the musicians, working with the technical directors, working with winch operators, doing calculations on how you fly on a winch and your body's going through the air. And it can be as different as 0.001 on a, on a computer for a good landing or a bad landing. So you have to play around with all these things to, uh, to see what works. And then finally, you start coming up with a product that's even closer and closer and closer and closer. And um, and of course, then you have to meet deadlines. So I was going to say, I just want to interrupt how important from that experience is attention to detail in that role you had? It, extremely. And it's also part of understanding that there's there's failures along the way. Uh, there's, there's things the director might not like. There's things that need to be tweaked and changed. So you've also got to understand that, yes, it's about trying to make sure everything's as you would like it to be or, or the director, but you've also got to be understanding that you could be off tangent a little bit and it needs to it needs to be going left instead of right uh, with something. So you've, you've also got to be able to adapt on the fly with, with that as well, for sure. Could you talk about the Michael Jackson show and your involvement in that? Yeah, yeah sure. I finished the show that was in Japan uh, after the earthquake and tsunami, and I ended up going to the Michael Jackson show. And again, that show was put together slightly different. It was more that Michael's music is so iconic that you can't change that. Michael's Michael. It was a matter of putting the acrobatic content to 
to Michael's music, whereas circuit before a little bit was putting the music to the to the acrobatics or the or the dance. So it was really understanding music. And to be honest, before I went to Michael Jackson, I thought I was a little dyslexic with music and I really did. I thought I was just an acrobatic person. And I actually found out that I was more musical than I actually realized. I can count to eight of music. I know all the beats of music and I understand now what what emotionally makes people want to enjoy a show. And I changed some of the acrobatic components to make an emotional connection with the music and with the movements for the highs, the lows, the accents and everything to create an emotional content. And that wasn't just me, that was everybody that was that was in the show. We, we You have to understand that. And that's what makes up, you either like a piece of music or, or not, but you can't quite put your finger on why. Look, uh, this is fascinating. Out of interest, would you say during the, this experience, it enhanced your creative thinking as a coach? 100%, 100%, because I didn't think I understood music and yet I do. And then I come back into the gym and I can understand what the kids are going through and how to match a floor routine music to the acrobatics or, or if I'm watching synchronized swimming or if I'm watching something else that's related to music, you, you can get this picture in your head of how, how things need to relate. And if you can make them relate, uh, in whatever way, then you're you're a better coach for it, I think. I was going to say that. How has that experience made you a better coach reflecting now? I try to, not necessarily as a coach, because I'm not necessarily coaching, so I'm more managing at the moment, but trying to transfer some of that knowledge onto the other coaches that I'm responsible for. So I think it's about knowledge trans- transferring. And just talk about responsibility. Again, this relates to a podcast, uh, sorry, WhatsApp call we had where I asked you how you dealt with pressure yeah, it was a phenomenal answer you, you said, but it was a very interesting point as well of how you look at pressure in general. Pressure. I, I actually enjoy pressure. I'm worse when I'm not under <laughs> under pressure. But the pressures as an athlete are quite different to the co- pressure as a, as a coach. So I'm not sure if I'm giving you the same answer as I did on my on my WhatsApp when we, when we had a chat. But um, when, when I was an athlete, it was all about the pressure on me as an individual. And if I if I failed or I did well it was all on me and it was I I had the full responsibility and I would take either the credit or the or the failures and having to deal with deal with that uh, as well as a coach or or in a collaborative environment it's different because one you can also hide behind somebody else if it's if it's in a team environment but but the pressures are very different as a as a coach you're, you're trying to also make the athletes understand and how to deal with those those pressures as well. So um, I'm not sure if that answer was the same as when we were. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The key thing you said with the coaching role, particularly at Circus de Soleil, you said um, it was the responsibility of safety, yes. which you said as an athlete, you know, you could learn from the mistake. But when there's other people doing those roles, and you said actually the pressure is higher, and I'm going to follow up with another question. Like, how do you manage pressure in general? I enjoy pressure because it gets my blood going. Um, it, it, it's almost like your blood's boiling. And, and if you, you've got you, if you're put on a, a real tight deadline and, and that's got to happen, a deadline's a deadline. Because uh, a performance is a performance or a sporting event is a sporting event. Our opening night at Michael Jackson was as stressful as you could possibly ever imagine <laughs> Because it, all the safety equipment has to be correct. Uh, uh, the, the music has to be correct. There's, there's millions of dollars at play. 
for for all of this as well. But also the safety of the the artists and the athletes and and everything's all all in your in your hands. Making sure that we've done the right amount of reps, the the right amount of uh, scenario based things, um, having backup plans and everything. So I I can't tell you exactly how I deal with it. I enjoy it. I think this is just for the listeners listening in. They can get a picture of that. Whatever we do, pressure is a good thing. And I love how you said, like, I've heard a a great quote, pressure is a privilege, you know, because it puts you in that certain situation. But look, just moving on from this conversation, could you just paint a picture of what you're currently doing now? Because you're doing some interesting coaching with teams with regards to, like, reduce injuries with falling. So could you just share what you're currently doing now? Because I find it very interesting as well. When I first moved to Australia, I, I moved in. I moved in with a guy called Ben Darwin, who was, who was a, a Wallaby uh, player, rugby player, and he'd hit the nail on the head with, for me because we, we were talking so many things about what was in common, what's different, and everything. And he literally said, "Lee, there, no one can teach how to fall properly and prevent injuries from from falling." And he said, mo- "And there was a lot. There was a study as well that said that yes, of course, there's injuries from um, from contact." But a lot of injuries are from falling. Uh, so I went and started to have a look at, um, uh, at that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of work on plyometrics, jumping and getting that that extreme height uh, from from the floor. But and that's all that's all good and it's de- definitely relevant. But there's not much work on the descent down. And especially if you're in a contact sport where you do get knocked and your and your body is off axis. Uh, there, how do you how do you know how to fall backwards properly? Uh, where where do you spot? And spot means look. Where do you look? How do you place your hands on the floor? Um, how do you roll around and and basically protect yourself, protect your head, uh, protect your extremities and limbs and, and things like that? So, I started I started doing a bit of work when I got to Australia with the Brisbane Broncos uh, about movement literacy, um, getting them really close to the floor. Um, rolling, uh, being in contact with the floor and the body, and then creating. So my philosophy is more about doing everything in a static position, everything then in a traveling movement, and then everything with traveling and height, and then create the, the, the movements around that uh, in a game-based scenario. So I did that with um, with Broncos, and then I started to do some work with uh, the Gold Coast Suns for AFL. Um, and even then, they jump even higher than than a, a rugby union player, right? Uh, and so they're, they're jumping, they're putting a knee on the shoulder, they're going right up for the ball, and they're probably eight, nine feet up in the air. And then they've got to come down. And gravity's always going to win. So uh, you, <laughs> you've got you've to be prepared for that. And if someone swiped your legs, um, what, what do you do? So... Um, so I started working with with them, and now now I'm in I'm actually in Singapore at the moment, and I did a little bit of work with the um, the, the Chelsea Academy that we the Chelsea Football Club Academy that we have over here, um, and using that with uh, some of their their junior kids as well, and really just trying to prevent injury, not just not just from uh, your body being well conditioned, but you've also got to teach it patterns of movement uh, when when but when they're slightly out of control and what, and how do you, and how do you do that? So I was going to say that when it does relate to today's podcast topic, like how can gymnastics prevent injuries in contact sports? I know you've just highlighted there, but out of interest with regards to the kids who do it at Chelsea and, you know, grown ups, we say who are pro athletes, can you see a, a difference of like, if they, if a young child learns this skill earlier, the better they'll be when they're 
in their mid-20s when they're at the peak of their career, you know, from an athlete perspective? Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things that's been really evident when I left Cirque and came back into, into gymnastics coaching was the era of, of the computer where kids are sitting in front of the computer all the time and then going back in and coaching, noticing that kids can't even skip properly, like we'd say with a skipping rope, that the coordination of, of hands in the movement and the feet on the floor and some of that basic movement patterns of kids is, is, is being lost. When they're going into the gym and they're learning that, and one of the first things we teach is how to fall properly. If you if you can do that and then you take that to football or whatever it you know, um, it will, it, your body goes back to what it knows. And if it knows bad habits, it will go back to bad habits. If it knows how to fall or protect itself, you, you know how to protect yourself. And one of the good examples, I did the first season with the AFL team. And I have to say, it wasn't, they weren't that great, uh, uh, some of the movement patterns we did. By second season, it was phenomenal. It was really phenomenal. They were, the, the change in just one season, understanding what their body was doing in midair, was, was quite significant. And that was just literally um, one season of, of working. So if you can do that from a young age, I, I definitely feel, and it doesn't mean you have to drum it every single day. It's just understanding um, patterns of what the body needs needs to do. Like you go over your handlebars on your bike. What do you, what do? You do? You, don't, you don't want to put your arm out. You, you want to be able to roll and, and protect yourself. Absolutely. Just with regards to phenomenal from that rugby example, was it phenomenal in regards to when you saw it in action, they were put into practice like unconsciously or was it phenomenal that there was lack of injuries or due to falls? Their physiotherapists did all of their stats from from their side. That year, they had the least amount of injuries going into their pre their, after their preseason than they'd had um, ever. I'm not going to say that that was one aspect that I think that was a complete global vision of, of the club as well as. Uh, and I think I contributed to that as well. Then you can see bits of it, glimpses of it coming out into play when they're when they're doing their their matches. Um, so is and then you go, ah, that, that was pretty cool. They, they learn how to how to do that properly. So uh, and then when they came around to second season, they knew intuitively where to put their hands on the floor, where to look when they're falling. The body became, it became a habit and a good habit. Oh, look, I'm really enjoying this conversation because I played rugby as a child and I wasn't taught how to fall, except I did learn myself just to keep things simple. You know, so when you land, put the ball behind, but try and think about the safety at the same time. So I'm finding this conversation fascinating and things have moved on from when I last played as well. But just going back to your career now, what have you enjoyed the most from your gymnastics career and coaching career looking back right now gymnastics career i enjoyed the two commonwealth games because it's a much smaller unit of people similar to olympics but it's in a nice friendly and it's called the friendly games but but it's still competitive so i really enjoyed the atmosphere of commonwealth games uh olympics is, is a highlight for anybody uh, you you can't take that away from anybody once you're olympian you're olympian and, and that's never going to be taken and taken away from you uh, so those, those those couple events. However, becoming twice British champion. Once you're champion, you're champion. Like you you you're not you don't remember second or third and fourth. You remember the the, the number one. So I know that's a very selfish thing, but but that's what it is. Um, and I I enjoy, I enjoyed to win. So that from from an athlete perspective, th- those three British champion, Commonwealth Games and Olympics uh, for for me. Coaching wise. Um, New Zealand got to its highest ever ranking at Commonwealth Games in, I think it was 2002, uh, so, uh, and I was part of that, 
that team. So I was very proud of the, of the team for for really stepping up and 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 making that work. So that that was very proud. Coaching wise, different type of coaching, getting that contract to go to Cirque du Soleil and having that experience of how you work in collaboration with people. And it's not all about you, it's about how the team works. And I learned a lot around about teamwork, collaboration, shared responsibility to make the bigger picture work. I really learned a lot there to take that into a really into a mentoring role to the coaches that I work with now. So that, that's kind of that, that journey. You said a great phrase, like when you said you were with the New Zealand setup, you said you had to step it up. Could you explain what you mean there? Was it mean step it up personally with your own responsibilities or just what did you mean with that phrase? Well, the, the, the team stepped up. They, they, they knew that they, all of the gymnasts there knew that they wanted to do be, be greater. Um, it was also about giving them the vision to be able to, to do that as well. If you can go in with a vision and go in with a passion and share that passion with, with them, then uh, they took another level up. And going from a, maybe a mindset of, I think I can do this to, no, I can do this. There's, there's a big difference. I know I can. I've got two arms, two legs, just like everybody else. So building that belief is so important. Sorry, this I'm going, I'm sort of like peeling the onions here because I think this is a great example. Like, so could you just touch on that? I know you've just given the example, but how big is belief that leads to positive momentum as well? The, the, the belief is is important. So um, I'm in a school at the moment um, and I'm trying to build the belief uh, of what you can do. And if they're not seeing other kids doing bigger skills or better skills or, or working hard at their strength and conditioning, then it's really hard to set that mindset to say that that's what you can do. So you've got to create the belief that it's possible. And once you get part, get to that point where you're making these incremental steps, you know, you've got to then educate the next tier down. And when I mean the tier, I mean like age groups down and, and whatever that, see, look, these things are possible. And then through a generational time, uh, that that part changes and the belief changes. Well, yeah, I can do a double flip and I can do this and I can do that. And then you turn to the little ones or, or even the older gym, say, turn to the little ones and say, you can do this too. And then they start to believe. Whereas if you're in a bit of a pessimistic uh, environment, and I believe in surrounding yourself with people that have a like-minded attitude, right? And so when you're, when you're looking at um, hiring and firing and, and, and everything else, you want to surround yourselves with people that have a similar mindset and that have uh, a vision and a goal. It might not always be the same vision, but you've got to, you've got to have a vision to try to achieve, whether that's someone to be just a club champion or to be national champion or to be Olympian. It doesn't matter as long as there's that that vision of what you want to do. My goodness, Lee, I hope people enjoy this conversation like I am. And I feel like we're at a great stage where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. Now, you've said some great examples of like pressure, which I've really enjoyed, and also your gymnastic career. But one thing I want to touch on is, for the listeners, what three tips would you give to the listener to improve their habits with regards to performing at their best in their day-to-day work? What would they be? Good question. Very good question, actually. I would say that you've you've got to have a dream about something, and that that dream can be slightly out of reach, but it's got to be at least possible. So that, that I think, but you've got to have a, you've got to have a dream of what of what you want. Secondly, um, you've got to put you you've got to have something in a in a, a list of the things that you need to do to get to that. 
dream. You can't just have a dream and go, okay, well, I've dreamt it and I would just want to be an Olympian. You've got to take some steps to do that. So write it down, put it on your fridge, put it on a whiteboard of um, eating healthy, uh, go to bed on time, make sure my time management is correct. And I think just make yourself a list of how to, how to get there. And the third one is believing in yourself and surrounding yourself, surrounding yourself with people that are, that can help you also get there. And you can inspire others too. Yeah, no, they're, they're three to the point habit tips. And it's just from your experience being a coach, you said about like patterns of movement um, and you said it all relates to a habit. And what you've just said there is the exact same of achieving what people want to achieve. So look, thank you for those three tips. Out of interest, Lee, how can people interact with you online? A lot of my stuff, I put like little things on LinkedIn. Uh, so j- just check me out on, on LinkedIn. Amazing to all the listeners listening in. That LinkedIn link will be on my blog post related to this podcast. Lee, it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ed. Thanks very much, mate. Whoa, what a phenomenal conversation with Lee. For me, I always get excited to speak to elite athletes on this podcast show, but what's even more special is Olympians. Firstly, it's a topic at school I absolutely enjoyed studying, but there's just something different when speaking to Olympian. There really is. I can't put my finger on it, but learning from Lee's journey, he's had his ups, he's had his downs, but there's something about his ups when being a British champion, which was so special to him, being an Olympian at the Atlantic Games just shows the hard dedication it takes to be an Olympian. doesn't matter what sport, but learning from Lee, it was just fascinating to hear his drive with regards to him making it as an Olympic athlete. Now, with regards to today's podcast episode topic, I hope you've got a better understanding how gymnastics can be used as a way to prevent injuries in contact sports. I found that a really interesting segment of this conversation with regards to how we can reduce injuries, particularly like concussions in like contact sports like NFL, rugby, football, you know, all these elements, how we can learn from other sports and apply it to contact sport. I just think it's fascinating, but most importantly, it's important with regards to this topic of injuries itself. But finally, from a sports career development perspective, I hope you put Lee's career tips right at the end into practice, particularly having your own self-belief in what you want to do and what you want to achieve. So on that note, I'd love to hear your biggest takeaway from today's episode. Let me know on Twitter at edbowers101 or on Instagram the same handle, Ed Bowers 101. I'd love to hear your biggest learning lesson. Let me know. I look forward to hearing from you. But most importantly, put those sports career tips into practice today and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Lee said, always have that self-belief in what you want to do and then surround yourself with people with that like-minded attitude and similar mindset.